0: This is Lisa DeLay and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is prolific author and editor at Paraclete Press, John M. Sweeney, and we will be discussing his biographical book, Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Catechist, and Saint. Thank you so much, John, for being my guest today.
1: Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be with you.
0: I've really deeply enjoyed this biography about a too little known man from the Lakota Sioux, Ogalala He was also second cousins with Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, and some of these people from our past are not as well known to maybe new generations of people, but his story is a very interesting one, and now he has been, by some of his relatives, has been presented for a case for canonization. And I think that maybe we'll hopefully get into what that even means, because I don't know that. Every one of my listeners understands the process of that or what that entails or what sainthood is and any of that. So I'm excited to dig in here. But as you um, approach this story with Black Elk born in 1866, it's kind of the time period we're talking about, and maybe you can set the stage a little bit of what was happening in American history at the time and his lifespan, what that span was.
1: Yes, I'd I'd love to. I mean, it's the setting of his life and the span of his life, as you say, that is part of what makes him such a uh, an interesting figure. Because, as your listeners probably can appreciate and probably already understand, there was a you know European invasion of the North American continent that was that's been had a four hundred year history. And um, it came to a real climax during Black Elk's lifetime through certain events that we learn about, hopefully, in elementary school. Um, Maybe we don't learn them correctly, but, you know, we learn about uh, the slaughter at Wounded Knee, and we learn about the Battle of Little Bighorn. Sometimes we end up calling it Custer's Last Stand. Um, but these are part of our cultural understanding and education. Um, Black Elk lived through those very events, and they were fundamental and foundational to his to his life. So, as you suggested, as you said, he was born in 1866 in what is now the state of Wyoming, which was then simply Lakota territory. And part of what I try to do in my biography of him is to tell the story of his people and their gradual loss of land, uh, uh, property, and uh, culture, and how some of this was deliberate at the hands of these white uh, European invaders. So, I, I mean, that's kind of a very broad answer to your question, but maybe that is the sort of bigger setting that you were that you were thinking about.
0: Yeah, that's a great starting point. And he, very young. He has a, a mystical experience and a great vision even before he's anywhere near adulthood. But I wanted to also set the stage for um his role as medicine man, which is passed down to him, and he's from a line of medicine men. And maybe you can speak about what is it? What are we speaking about when we say medicine man? And what does it mean that this was kind of part of his heritage? And he's the sixth grandfather, and and. Maybe you can lay out a setting for that too.
1: Sure. Yeah, the medicine man or holy man um, in Lakota is uh, Wichasha Wakan, which means holy man. Also means medicine man. Um, there's also a, a Wakasa Wakan who is a holy man or a priest. So there's ways in which the the terms are interchangeable. For your listeners who are Christian, uh, Waniyan Wakan is Holy Spirit, and you kind of hear the similarity of the language, Mm -hmm. which I'm I'm getting ahead perhaps, but that's part of what is the interesting story of Black Elk is the way in which his life combined his Oglala Sioux Lakota native uh, spiritual tradition Mm -hmm. uh, later in life, midlife, and then later in life with the Catholicism to which he he converted and uh, and added to his to his religious experience. But where he came from before that happened, uh, you know, from birth was that he was born into a, a lineage of medicine men, mm-hmm. holy men, like a priest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And part of being such a person was to receive visions. Visions were taken seriously. Visions and dreams were taken very seriously by all of the Lakota people. And they were not the exclusive privilege of only medicine men, but they were expected of medicine men, and they were deeply, you know, foundational in their lives. When he was nine, he had his first such a pivotal experience, which um, some um, late twentieth century, twenty-first century experts have looked at his experience and the accounts of it and have concluded perhaps it was a near-death experience because it does seem Mm -hmm. to have taken place uh at a time of unconsciousness Mm -hmm. but it was greatly detailed um, and is detailed for anyone who perhaps in college read the book black elk speaks which is the Mm -hmm. best-selling book in history on a native american and his his experience Mm -hmm. and in this vision we have uh, a whole sort of a uh, uh, mythology of the grandfathers um, that was foundational to, to Black Elk's understanding and of Lakota religion generally. And Black Elk received at the age of nine, to make a long story short, received the message that he was supposed to play a pivotal role in uh, saving his people, which essentially meant from this white European invasion.
0: And you mentioned that the role of the vision also meant that he would be schooled in counseling, listening, healing, and interpreting as part of his, you could say, priestly role in the community. And he, this role plays out in his role as a teacher, or catechist later on too, as he continues to speak Lakota and reach his people through Catholicism, as well as maintain his indigenous spirituality and the ceremonies and rituals from which he came from as well.
1: Right. Uh, yes. I mean, and and he, he bridges the two communities in that way. So uh, he certainly was not, um, it'd be a mistake for anyone to get the impression that he was one of the first uh, Oglala. Uh, or Lakota to become a Catholic. In fact, mm-hmm. he had been—he um, was married to a woman who died uh, in middle age, and Black Elk ended up remarrying several years later. But the woman to whom he was married, who died, was Catholic um, before he was. So I mean, that's just an example of how it was actually becoming rather common on the reservation because there were. They were both uh, Catholic Jesuit priests who were uh, working on, on the reservation where Black Elk was located, which is the Pine Ridge Reservation in what is now uh, South Dakota. But there also were Episcopalians and others. So, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, of active Christian missionary work that had gone on for decades and, in fact, even centuries which is also part of the story that that is essential to understanding Black Elk, which is the colonialism of that European invasion that I've mentioned a few times, but that also had a missionary arm to it. So that's part of the complication of, of the story, is that there's divided feelings, um, emotions, and opinions about what a native person uh, what what his or her uh, conversion to Christianity might mean? Is it a renunciation of you know that which um, they're converting from and to? And so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of debate among native writers about what it means in the life of Black elk.
0: That brings me to a really interesting point that I. I never knew myself until I started looking at it, looking at this more recently. But when we're speaking about Native Americans and Lakota Sioux specifically, we're really talking about monotheists. And we're speaking uh, on page 46, you mentioned they would have thought of Jesus as a medicine man and the great spirit or Wakan Tanka as the great grandfather of all, the most yes. powerful other God and really is not antithetical to Christian theology, and I think would have been received without forced conversion or genocide or any of that. Maybe um, the Europeans were spooked by their, I guess their attuning their oneness with nature or their, their reverence for nature, I, I should say, um, that they weren't dualistic and split off. But it doesn't seem like there's this giant, at least in comparison to other cultures, it doesn't seem so far removed from Christianity, or maybe I'm seeing it wrong. Could you explain it a little?
1: Actually, what you just explained is how I would explain the Jesuit success, Mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better word. Speaking from the perspective of trying to achieve missionary goals,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: one of the reasons why the Jesuits were quite successful at in in the reservation system in the late 19th century early 20th century was -hmm. precisely because of that because they saw what was lakota religion mythology belief even language Mm -hmm. and attitudes and emotion toward the divine Mm -hmm. as uh, not antithetical to christianity but complementary to -hmm. christianity so they they used that language, they adopted a lot of that language, you know, they started talking about God as wakantanka, mm-hmm. which is great spirit in Lakota, but it's also, I mean, there's no reason why that great spirit is not the same thing as what Christians would call holy God, uh, mm-hmm. or perhaps God the Father. And uh, Wanakiya, Jesus, which uh, has, has, has sort of grown to mean in Lakota, he who makes live which is mm. really a beautiful uh, mm. phrase, a beautiful understanding, and one that Black Elk, when he was later a catechist, a very active catechist, used that phrase and that understanding of Jesus actively. Mm. It comes, of course, straight from some of the stories of the Gospels. He who makes mm. live. So mm. um, th- this is in th- the reason why this is sort of a brilliant approach of the Jesuits is because, of course, this is not the way that Christians uh, of all backgrounds. Treated mm-hmm. Native American people. Right. It's certainly not the attitude that Christopher Columbus had uh, when he, you know, left in 1492 and was trying to find a passage to India and ended up somewhere near the North American continent, and then gave us the name Indians. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. he was looking to enslave and conquer, you know, Muslims, and and had a whole different agenda than what mm-hmm. I just was describing about. Jesuit approach as a missionary approach. So, yes, I think there are remarkable uh, similarities. Um, I think there are mystics who might suggest that those similarities are because, when you pair everything else away, the essence of religion is this sort of mystical oneness. I don't think I would necessarily adopt that view, but there's all different ways to approach this, and um, mm-hmm. and but but that is also part of the story of Black Elk is how these traditions came together.
0: Hmm. You mentioned something about Agenda, which brings me to um, go back a little bit to what you say is the most popular, most sold book about a Native American, which is the book by John G. Neihart, Black Elk Speaks, which didn't sell very well at first, but then was this huge sensation in the 1960s. But it was for a particular reason. It had a particular agenda, and we know the most about Black Elk and some of these these ideas about him, which he had to go back and refute um, with his own words. And I would like if you could explain some of what was going on there and then what he had to kind of clarify later, because I think people might have the wrong impression about Black Elk and, and that's part of what your book goes on to correct.
1: Yeah, this is something I, I address uh, right at the beginning in the introduction. There's a, there are a few things that I try to address sort of quickly and succinctly, but it also takes a few pages because Black Elk Speaks, yes, as I said, uh, is the best-selling book in the world. And, and when I say in the world, uh, I'm, I'm saying that intentionally. Uh, there's, there's probably even more interest in Native American tradition and history in Europe than there is in the United States or in Canada. Um, I'm not going to get into necessarily why that is, but it is still true today. Um, uh, For instance, a book on Black Elk uh, that publishes in France or Germany will probably sell more copies than that book would sell in the United States. So there's a lot of interest uh, in this. And um, so all over the world, in languages all over the world, Black Elk Speaks uh, by John G. Neihart um, uh, has sold millions of copies. It was first published in 1932, uh, so think the Great Depression. Um, it was 1931, when the, the summer of 1931, when the interviews that Neihart had with Black Elk took place. And uh, in terms of the chron- chronology of Black Elk, he was uh, just uh, in, in rather old age at that point. Uh, he would live another uh, 19 years, so he wasn't at the very end of his life, which is an impression that you get from Nyhart, because mm-hmm. Nyhart was of that school that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, Nyhart used to say, the essence of religion is mystical experience. Oh. Uh, so actually, when I was referring to that view a few minutes mm-hmm. ago in answering another question, I was kind of quoting John Neihart. Um And uh, John Nyhart went to... Uh, Pine Ridge Reservation uh, because he wanted to find someone who would talk to him about Native American spiritual practices and traditions. He he had this idea of the lost Indian, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of looking out into the distance uh, that he wanted to find. And so he went looking for something specifically. He didn't know who he was looking for. He knew a character or a type that he was Mm -hmm. looking for. Uh, he was Nebraska's Poet Laureate, so he, uh, and he was uh, an amateur uh, sort of anthropologist, um, and he was pointed to Black Elk. Now, what's interesting is that Neihard himself was a mystic and uh, was a charismatic character. Uh, you can go on YouTube, I think, still and look at interviews that he gave on the Dick Cavett Show uh, in the '60s, before he died, or maybe it was the early '70s, early '70s before he died, um, and he's a he's a little he's a little man with his big head of white hair. He almost looks like Carl Jung or something, and I think he had a lot of affection actually for the ideas of Carl Jung. But he said things in interviews for decades after the book came out, and this is when it became a bestseller in the '60s and '70s, as you were saying. When it first came out, you know, it didn't make much of a mark, but then. In the 60s and 70s when we were in the midst of the vietnam war and all sorts of other turmoil there was this nostalgic looking back to the native american i think that was going on and you had john nyhart on the dick cavett show saying things like he made me his spiritual son speaking of black elk uh and 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 he used to also like to say that when i found him in that summer of 1931 he had been waiting for me to come um (laughs) And he was a captivating guy, as I say. So uh, the these things had real effect. And this is part of why the book became so popular. But the con- I'll try and say this very quickly. The controversy about the book is that you have to take John Neihart's word for it that this is what Black Elk said.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There were other interviews to come after Black Elk Speaks was published in 1932. Um, And they told more of the story of Black Elk and sometimes a little bit of a different story. And most of all, Neihardt really doesn't even mention the fact that by the time he met met Black Elk in 1931, that Black Elk had spent a quarter of a century as a Catholic catechist and and missionary. Mm. And I don't just suggest, I say in my book, and it's and it's not an original idea for me, but I say that uh, this is because that's the person that Black Elk wanted to meet. He wanted to meet the, the Native American who had lost his culture and lost his religion and lost his his, uh. way, his way of life at the hands of the white invader. And he didn't want to tell a story of how all of that was true, but also the person who was being interviewed and with whom he was speaking with uh, was a convert to Catholicism and an active catechist who had uh, been responsible for baptizing hundreds of people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That would have messed up the story a little bit. So yeah. So that's why there's like a big grain of salt with uh, Black Elk Speaks, and I addressed that at the beginning of, of my book.
0: To go along with the idea about what people expect from Native Americans, there's we still have a lot of that playing into white sensibilities now and what we expect or what we think we're talking about or thinking about when we imagine what Native American people are like. And this was an interesting part of Black Elk's early adulthood when he was actually traveling with the Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West show. And he actually got out of his area and even traveled overseas. It seems like from what you say in the book, that this had an enormous impact on him because he got to see other places in the world and maybe opened his eyes. I don't know if that had an impact on him spiritually or religiously, but do you mind talking about um, that influence on him?
1: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I keep saying this. I, I think I'm repeating myself. That it's a, it's another fascinating episode in his life. But he had a lot of fascinating episodes in his life. Uh, <laughs> I've 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 written. This is my third biography. My first two biographies were of writers, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and writers don't tend to have fascinating episodes in their lives. You know, I mean, sometimes <laughs> a biography of a writer tends to be, uh, you know, and then she and then she wrote this book, and then she wrote the next book,
0: and right? her sort
1: of thing. <laughs> But, Black Elk uh, lived a life, man. He really lived uh, a fascinating life during a fascinating period of time. and mm-hmm. and and a- another way in which he baffled people was that he joined the Wild West Show, Wild Bill Cody's Wild West Show. Um, and people can look that up if they don't remember what that is. but um, this is sort of in the you know, in the era of P. T. Barnum and the Big Show, and it was uh, an exploitation, really. I mean, the reason why people were baffled as to why, uh, why a, uh, a Native American holy man with Black Elk's kind of heart and passion uh, would join the Wild West show and travel around portraying an Indian uh, for crowds of white people yeah. is because he was he was playing a part in the exploitation of his people, um, mm-hmm. and I and I can't imagine that that wasn't understood even by him at that time. So that's. Uh, and, I, and I try not to sugarcoat that in the book, mm-hmm. but uh, it is true. Um, so this was right after uh, Custer died at the Battle of Little Bighorn uh, was when Bill Cody, who created this show, uh, became famous. Um, and he became famous because he started to create alternative versions of what happened oh. that day when Custer died. Um, oh, yeah. he, he actually had a part of the show uh, that often included Custer living that day and conquering <laughs> uh, the Native Americans rather than dying. He created the, the, wild, the wild West show. Uh, Black Elk was not the first, certainly not the only, Lakota to join it. Uh, but yes, he then traveled all over the country and then to England and France as part of the show. Um, he, played, he played at Madison Square Garden. Uh, for many weeks Uh, they traveled by boat uh, across the Atlantic to England while they were in England they performed for Queen Victoria Mm -hmm. whom Black Elk refers to as Grandmother England Mm
0: -hmm.
1: they actually performed for her not once but twice the second one was a command performance at Windsor Castle that she asked for Mm. And we know that at that performance, that Black Elk danced specifically for the Queen and that they had some Mm. conversation.
0: Mm.
1: So, but I mean, the show ran in London for six months. Average attendance was 30,000 people. I mean, this was huge. Wow. The daily newspapers in London would tell stories about seeing uh, Indians around town and, you know, where did they eat and what were they doing and things like that. Um, so Black Elk wasn't known by name, but he was mm-hmm. certainly uh, famous at that time. Uh, and then there's kind of a, there's various backstories about what he did when he was in England. And there was a fire in one of the hotels where they stayed. And then he went mm-hmm. to Paris and he seems to have had a girlfriend. And I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things. But to kind of get around to what you had asked originally, I think it, you, you end up asking yourself, why did he do it and what did he learn? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately it was to his desire to fulfill what uh, the grandfathers had seen for his future in that mm-hmm. vision that he had back when he was a boy, to bring healing and wholeness to his people. Mm-hmm. Black Elk seems to have believed that joining the big show and leaving home, you know for for these foreign lands and stuff was a good idea because he might learn something about the white person mm-hmm. because the white person was was a threat, was a mm-hmm. uh, existential threat to his his people, their future mm. ways of life. Um, so he wanted to see them close up, people of white and European descent. And one thing I say sort of at the end of that chapter where I talk about that is that in Lakota, uh, the word for white, which is wasichu, uh, literally means greedy person who takes the fat.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs>
1: I and, love that. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, he's, they've got a point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not wrong it's yeah not wrong. exactly <laughs> well I, i'll leave uh the the juicy tidbits of what happens in europe to uh the reader but there's some really interesting stuff that happens over there and how he actually gets back uh there's some things that i won't yeah. reveal I'll leave, leave some some fun stuff there's a lot of great stories that you include uh that were We're really fascinating. He's definitely a a larger-than-life kind of character in some ways. And maybe we could move to his later life now. He takes up the name Nicholas because he is baptized on St. Nicholas's feast day. Yes. In his later life um, as he uh, converts to Catholicism. And he has this fascinating he calls it the good red road of jesus i thought that was really interesting and maybe you could explain this supervised ministry that he has that's supervised by the jesuits and and he doesn't abandon the ways and the spirituality of lakota life but he is thoroughly catholic as well and does a lot for um does a lot as a catechist and is really a fascinating piece that I think that that's really the new piece that people might not know.
1: Yes, a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching, a lot of traveling, um, itinerant missionary work, um, very much modeled after the book of Acts in the New Testament, um, deliberately. Uh, He was uh, tutored and taught, discipled by Jesuit priests who were his friends. Um, I also tell some stories in the book about Um, how they were his friends, but there also were some instances where they questioned him in a way that they did not question uh, other white missionaries or catechists just to show that, you know, prejudices die hard. But he was, um, you know, he'd gone from being, you know, born into the Ogallala Lakota people and hunting buffalo on the northern plains and fighting at Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee to uh, carrying a Bible and a hymn book and traveling uh, from church to church and attending um, uh, Catholic conferences uh, with lots of other uh, people doing the same kind of work and writing articles occasionally uh, and letters, again, like the Book of Acts or like the New Testament and the epistles of of St. Paul, writing letters to churches that were published in in newspapers and in church bulletins and things. He uh, he entered the when he entered the church, it's like he embraced a a different way of healing. Mm -hmm. He had been a holy man, you know, a healer, but then he embraced a, you know, Christianity and the life of the sacraments and the Holy Spirit specifically and the Trinity specifically and the ways of healing that he learned um, as a Christian, as a Catholic. Interestingly, I think he became a great catechist and was quite successful in part because he was able to memorize uh, Mm. scripture in a way that whites probably had unlearned. I mean, it used Mm. to be, I think, in the Middle Ages, uh, through the era of the Renaissance, probably, uh, Mm. memorization was essential to education, but no longer uh, was it by the early 20th century certainly and certainly today it's not um uh, at all something that we emphasize in education mm-hmm. but uh in lakota education it was it was all about memorization um so he was able to memorize vast portions of scripture and he also was able to ver- you know speak uh with great conviction and and persuasively so he was a, he was a good missionary he was a good catechist mm-hmm. he was um Known by other Catholic groups we know, you know, throughout the United States at that time, the fledgling, you know, still United States in the middle of the country there. Um, And he was uh, credited, you know, with bringing more than 400 people into the church. And there were more than 100 that referred to him as Godfather yeah he had a powerful Christian witness uh, and a powerful work as a Catholic catechist and missionary. It was not just sort of a, a side note to his life this mm-hmm. occupied decades
0: mm-hmm. And can you explain what the good red road of Jesus is? The,
1: well the good red road is uh, the the red road is a is a phrase of Native American spiritual teachings uh, mm-hmm. and it it's used to the you know the redness is meant to communicate native american identity in black elk speaks uh john nyhart had explored uh, you know spiritual beliefs told to him by by black elk and had used the phrase there um, um, great spirit my grandfather all over the earth the faces of living things are all alike this was some of the language that uh, that black mm. elk used there and look you know you would say things like look upon the face Uh, the faces of children uh, as they face the wind and walk the good road the good red road to the day of quiet Um, so this was part of native american teaching and then it was um, kind of like i said that you know when he joined the church when he deliberately became a catholic he embraced a new kind of healing he then embraced a you know a broader understanding of what the red road was in his spiritual vision it was a red road of Jesus. And Wanakia, I had to pause there too. These are hard words and, I, and I'm and i not a Lakota speaker, but Wanakia, that word I mentioned before for Jesus, he who makes live, you know, uh, Jesus became an essential part of his teaching uh, after his conversion and became an essential piece of following that good red road.
0: And maybe you can explain for people who are not familiar with the process of canonization or the um, opening of a case for that. His progeny uh, presented in 2016 a petition in Rapid City, South Dakota um, to open a case for canonization. And why would people do that? What is the process?
1: I've long been interested. In fact, before I became a Catholic, I was a Protestant writing a book about, writing books about saints and canonization of things because I found it so so fascinating. Sort of this aspect of the Catholic imagination was very different from what I had grown up with in my um, uh, evangelical Protestant background, which is what I was raised in. So anyway, I think the best way to approach canonization is the way that it was uh, done in the Middle Ages earlier than the time of St. Francis, which was uh, canonization meant that it was so certain and obvious that a person had lived uh, the kind of a life that was exemplary that um, once they were gone um, they would be in heaven and if they were in heaven they were part of that cloud of witnesses that the book of hebrews makes reference to cheering us on and there's no reason why we couldn't ask them deliberately to help keep cheering us on Um, so i mean uh, canonization in that sense was quite different than what it is right now in the Catholic Church. And I'm not criticizing what it is in the Catholic Church at all. It's just things get formalized um, and rules uh, are, are created, and uh, we have to standardize how we handle things. In fact, we could standardize it even further in the Catholic Church because we've probably canonized some people that we shouldn't have, or certainly shouldn't have done it so quickly. But it basically means that, um, that the faithful are turning, are, present tense, turning to Nicholas Black Elk to ask him for, uh, for a bit of guidance, to ask him to cheer them on, to ask him to intercede on their behalf, just like I might ask you to intercede on my, my behalf in prayer. So uh, people are doing that um, ever since his death people have been doing that at the Pine Ridge Reservation and in Native Native American communities throughout the country and the world, and beyond that, those who have been impacted by the life of Nicholas Black Elk. And so for that reason, it's almost like finally, in March of 2016, the grandchildren of Nicholas Black Elk formally presented a petition to Bishop Gruss, who was then uh, the Bishop of the Diocese of Rapid City, South Dakota that's how it's done formally, is that it, it's a homegrown thing for the reasons I was describing, and it comes from where the person lived and usually where he or she is buried. And so that's how it began. And then in 2017, it was in the fall of 2017 that the bishop then consulted, because this is the process, consulted then with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops at their, at their big meeting, and, the, and they agreed... Uh, And then officially the cause for canonization was uh, created and opened and Black Elk, Nicholas Black Elk, was then from then forward referred to now as servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk. Um, Next he would be beatified and then after that he would be canonized and there are rules for those things in terms of miracles that are attributed to his intercession. Um, Part of the process too is that there were vice postulators of the cause of canonization meaning a few people who are assigned to research the life of the figure and the writings of the person and um if if relevant uh interview people who could have known him or could have known people who knew him and that whole process went on for the last few years that that process actually and a friend of mine was one of those vice postulators um, and another one of them was was uh, an archivist here in Milwaukee, where I live, uh, who works at the Marquette University, which is one of the holdings of the papers of Nicholas Black Elk. Um, but anyway, that process is now completed, and the cause is now entirely in Rome. So it could not, it could sit there forever and and go nowhere. It could sit there for five years, ten years two generations. I mean, sometimes um, th- these, are, uh, these, these go in lots of different directions, but he is servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk. And those of us uh, who um, have him cheering us on, as I say, are, are hoping uh, and looking to the day when it moves further down the process. And he is one day uh, named a saint.
0: Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I think uh, it is confusing to some people what's going on there, but it is a really an honoring of his life and work and his and his continual work because there is no death. There is no actual death going on. We still serve God after this point. I think too, um, you mentioned that there was another saint of Native American heritage. If he was made a saint, would he be the only the second one? Or are there more?
1: Saint Kateri, Pekakwitha, who was in 2012, made the first Native American, to be clear, a saint by the church. Yeah, it was quite recent. And in fact, there's a connection with Black Elk and her is that her, and this, this illustrates what I was saying before, is that her cause for canonization was active in the late 19th century, and Black Elk was someone who actually signed a petition uh, as part of her cause for canonization. Yeah, she also lived on a Jesuit uh, mission, uh, but she, but she was in uh, the part the part of Canada which is south of Montreal, which used to be called New France. One of the mistaken impressions you get from John um, uh, you know, nineteen thirty-two bestseller was that he was illiterate. He was not at all illiterate, either in Lakota or in English. But um, but they weren't writings of. A, of a, of a theological sort of character, and then it just takes a while for the for the stories to the stories of someone's life um, to research them and to verify them, and you know the the causes for canonization take these things really seriously. That said, um, I'm, I'm sure that the church has been too slow to recognize indigenous peoples everywhere. So I, I think we could easily conclude that that's true. um, But I think maybe we're getting a little bit better at it. There was a really foundational document at Vatican II called Nostra Tate. Uh, And Nostra Tate is simply Latin for in our time. And the bishops called it a a decade, like the subtitle was Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. And it was a it was a foundational change uh, in the way that the church, the Catholic church specifically, uh, relates, related to and relates today to uh, anyone outside of the Catholic church in Christianity, but also those who are of non-Christian religions. Paragraph two has a a simple sentence that says, "'The Catholic church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions.'" Mm -hmm which is amazing. Um, and,
0: that's huge, right?
1: Yeah, it's huge and transforming. And, and frankly, you know, part of the, the sort of uh, split that's in all aspects of American life today is also very real in the Catholic Church. And I, mm-hmm. when, when, when I say that sentence to uh, a lot of conservative Catholics today, they, they either can't believe that it's in an official uh, church doc, uh, uh, document, which is supposed to relate mm-hmm. to uh, Catholic belief, um, among the faithful, or they reject uh, Vatican II and this document uh, sort of out of hand, and mm-hmm. and they seem to think that uh, when when this you know uh, part of the church took root, then the faith was lost. Oh, this is part of the crazy split that's going on in all aspects mm-hmm. of life now. Right, you know we choose the facts that we want, and not not just what we want to believe, but we choose the facts we want. <laughs> So, but, but anyway, it was called Nostra and yes, that was the turning point. And the time frame that we're talking about is uh, 1963, 4, 5. It was because of Vatican II, I think, that we have been able to see what I think the Jesuits were already doing so well in the early 20th century in the way that they were teaching the faith uh, at Pine Ridge Reservation and among the Catech catechizing work that Nicholas Black Elk was a part of, that they were already doing it really well ahead of their time, because it was ahead of the 1960s when Vatican II and Nostra Tate sort of formalized the idea uh, that there is value in non-Christian religions, that there is truth to be found everywhere, that the Holy Spirit works everywhere, is not exclusive to Christianity. Since 1965, with Nostra Tate, we are even better placed to be able to see how the Great Spirit, uh, Wankantaka in Lakota uh, is the same object of devotion as Wankantaka, God the Father, um, and how these are not just complementary, but they're probably the same thing. We don't have to use the sort of the teaching of self-contempt, which missionaries, for centuries used, uh, you know, like you have, to get, you have to get Native people to have contempt for who they are and what they've learned in the past as, as something that needs to be completely eschewed from life before then you can replace it with Christianity. That did not take place in Black Elk's life, and I think it, it was a way in which they were ahead of their time. And now, since Vatican II, we can easily do that because we see that that is truth, that that is the way it should be.
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful point. I think because often what happens, and in my personal experience, what happens is that the self-contempt and the coercion that happens is a really a coercion to uh, sometimes a form of claims of white supremacy, some kind of European or Eurocentric ways of worshiping God instead of appreciating what's already there in the culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is a an insight uh, into the work of God that I really appreciate. It's finally realizing, oh, maybe God's not a Christian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> surprise,
0: right. surprise. What else would you like to speak about regarding the book that maybe I haven't touched on that you would like to bring to the surface?
1: Well, I I think the only thing I would say, um, well, no, there's maybe two things I would say that we haven't talked about. One is that um, I think I think we need to be careful. We meaning uh, anyone who's Christian or comes to this Mm -hmm. conversation from Christian background. I think we need to be careful about how we use or we potentially use Native American spirituality and Mm -hmm. adopt pieces of it for our own. Ends and needs taking it out of its context, and one of the things I try to say right at the top of uh, Nicholas Blackout is that my book doesn't do that. That if if you're looking for pieces of Native American spirituality that you can perhaps incorporate into your into your Christian life, because I'm I'm assuming that most of the readers of this book will be from a Christian perspective, then you should go elsewhere because. there's kind of a wow factor that comes when we discover indigenous you know, folk mm-hmm. tales and theological ideas and ceremonies and things. And the idea of sort of uh, taking one here and there and uh, adopting a little bit is just one more piece of that colonizing mm. that is part of Black Elk's story. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I guess I would say. The other thing is sort of at the end of the story of Black Elk, And one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is something that we haven't yet talked about, which is just simply the way in which he baffled and continues to baffle two different communities, the communities Mm -hmm. being his fellow indigenous Native American folks and the other community being Christians or Catholics more specifically, Mm -hmm. because he was able to be both fully. And there's this sense uh, among Catholics that, if he uh, some Catholics, that if, if he were to be uh, you know genuine and sincere as a as a missionary, as a convert, as a catechist, then he would, like I was saying before, issue what had come before. He would deny what had come before. But he didn't. He learned new ways of healing. He learned about Jesus. He learned, he learned about God in a way that expanded uh, who he was. but it doesn't mean, that he no longer was who he was. I mean, we, we were taught to assume that Euro-American civilization, you know, eclipsing Native cultures and with it that Christianity eclipses Native religion. But it didn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. And it wasn't that way in Black Elk. And so he baffles people. Mm-hmm. He baffles a lot of Native American folks, including mm-hmm. some members of his own family who kind of went on record to talk about how they don't believe he really could have been a sincere convert to Catholicism because he was so devout, devoted to uh, Native ritual and to his work as a medicine man. So mm. it's one of the interesting tensions of his life. And there's probably, I don't know, 10 pages in, towards the end of my book where I discuss all that and, and how, uh, how he will continue to frustrate some. But I think there's a way to, to see it as a beautiful integration of a whole.
0: Hmm. And that sounds like a real person, actually. Yes. Any person we actually know is a bit baffling. <laughs> it doesn't just fit neatly into one spot or another.
1: Absolutely. I I, I mean, I mentioned before that I'm a convert to Catholicism. Yeah. I, I am not one of those converts who, you know, trumpets and says, you know, I came to the one true faith and thank God I found the only place that was you know, safe and true to be. I don't feel that way at all. There's lots of complicated reasons why I became a Catholic, which I'll be happy to share with anyone over a cup of coffee someday if they want. But um, I often will give a talk to a a parish group or, you know, when I do a bookstore event or something, and I will sometimes have a little moment where I talk about how spiritual paths and journeys are really complicated. And I'll just say a couple of things about my own journey. And I always do that because people come up to me afterwards and they say, I'm so glad you said that thing about how spiritual journeys are really complicated because mine is so complicated and let me tell you about it. And, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we only hear from people who seem to be just so sure and certain Mm. and clear, and um, it's not always so sure and certain. And sometimes it's kind of convoluted, but it still can be a whole that makes really good sense and has beauty.
0: Mm. Well said. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate this time that you've shared with me about the book. And where can people find more about you or find the book? Where should they go?
1: I, you know, to, to answer that question, I always just say wherever books are sold, right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what we're supposed to say? I mean, you don't have to go to only one or two places. Wherever you right. buy your books, I think you can find this one. And and it is available. I don't I don't know when you will be going live uh, with this podcast, but it'll be December fifteenth when the book is published.
0: Sounds good. It's with Liturgical Press. Yeah, get the book. I think it makes for very interesting reading, enlightening reading. When it comes to the Native American people, that we need to do due diligence and really understand who we're talking about, and then also rally behind them to make sure that their voices are heard in their own voices, not us speaking for them. And so when you present his life as more complicated than it's been presented, that goes a long way to help people hopefully get more interested in learning the truth about him, but also other Native Americans we might not be so familiar with.
1: Yes, yes, I agree.